You know, when we're around places like Yellowstone, we get a very peaceful, blessed feeling because of that connection we have to all above ground and all below ground. And so, again, you take care of us, we take care of you. What the Creator gave us takes good care of us. We're so thankful for that. Hello, and thank you for joining us again for the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast. I'm Kristen Kuhn, your host. We have a very important episode for you this month, and I'm eager to share it with you all. March 1st, 2022 marked the 150th anniversary of the founding of Yellowstone National Park. This important milestone is reason to celebrate this special place, but also reason to reflect on its history and envision a more inclusive future. Despite myths about Yellowstone being an untouched, uninhabited land before the Yellowstone Park Protection Act was signed in 1872, the lands that became the world's first national park were inhabited by or important to many indigenous peoples. Today, dozens of tribes can still draw ancestral connections to the park. To honor indigenous ways of life and to explore how we can work together to create a brighter future, the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes of the Wind River Reservation gathered people online to commemorate the park's anniversary while elevating the tribal community's voice in conservation. The tribes will also host an in-person intertribal gathering this June on the Wind River Reservation. WES leads GYC's work to protect and restore indigenous conservation priorities that honor cultural landscapes, tribal rights, and ways of life. We'll discuss his work, some of his favorite moments from the recent virtual gathering, and hear a few deeply personal stories about what has shaped WES's storied career in championing both conservation and tribal sovereignty. Also in this episode, despite all efforts to create a quiet recording space, you'll finally get to meet my party-crashing co-host, Teebs, my 15-year-old deaf gray rescue cat. He chose to be especially vocal during this conversation, but let's hope that's an indication of how engaging you will find it as well. And with that, let's meet Wes Martell. Uh, my name is Wes Martell, and... I am uh, the Senior Wind River Conservation Associate for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. A lot of my experience in, in my uh, history is I spent 20 years on the Eastern Shoshone Business Council for the uh, Eastern Shoshone Tribe or the Wind River Reservation and really acquired a lot of uh, background knowledge and experience related to conservation work. Is that how you got into conservation work, Wes? Yes. When I was on the council, we had uh, several subcommittees. We have two tribes at Wind River. We have two councils. And so we had uh, several subcommittees to try to handle different aspects of tribal business. One of the subcommittees was the Fish and Game Committee. And I served on that committee for at least, out of the, the 20 years, probably at least 16 years as the chairman of that committee. And I really started, uh, you know, understanding um, how important the work of our Fish and Wildlife Service is regarding scientific and technical information in your management planning, you know, habitat studies, forage studies, uh, harvesting data, you know, for hunting and you know, a lot of reservations uh, never had any type of game codes. It was year-round hunting, mm-hmm. no limits on on what you could you could go out and, and take. And 
working with fish and wildlife service and doing annual aerial census surveys of big game herds we we found out that our big herd games were decreasing and uh, in, in relation to the habitat and the forage that we had and you know one of the areas that we have at wind river we have 138,000 acre roadless area i think we're the only reservation in the country with a roadless area and this roadless area was created back in 1934. And so way back then, even our elders were thinking about conservation and how do yeah. we make sure our wildlife and our herds, you know, are protected. Because that area they designated as a roadless area, it's some of the best habitat in the world for elk and other big game. And so, I, so just being just involved with that and then... Um, when we finally did um, try to uh, talk about establishing a game code, I was the chairman of the Fish and Game Committee at the time, and that was um, a political hot potato to go out <laughs> and talk to tribal members about, we're going to have a game code, and we're, we're going to stop year-round hunting, and we're going to have to start placing limits. And uh, we had public meetings, informational meetings with tribal members to go out and talk about uh, this game code and I used to dread those meetings because boy we just go get cussed out for about three or four hours and oh, you're nothing but a sellout you're taking away our treaty rights you know and so it was, but uh, when I finally came to the vote the majority of our people said a game code was, was the way to go so that I was really glad that you know all that all that work uh, paid off and so now we've got you know Nowadays, a tribal member uh, for some areas, you can get up to five tags for elk because oh, wow. we're you know we're we're harvesting, we're managing, we're protecting the habitat, we're protecting them during hard times and the winter times, and so that's conservation. Yeah, absolutely. So how how did you convey like what was your strategy or your story for conveying the importance of implementing game codes at that time? Because that that is hard when you're there can be a perception that you're taking something away from people. You know, what sort of tools did you use to make the case that that kind of management wasn't, was important? Well, the, the initial uh, reason was that, you know, in our, in our beliefs, the animals, the fisheries, the wildlife, they're our relatives. And we have to take care of our relatives. They Reciprocity. You take mm -hmm. care of us, we take care of you. And then the other side of it was that uh, right before that, the state of Wyoming um, started putting out some um, public notices that they were going to start imposing state game laws on the reservation. And so that was an immediate red flag right away. And I think that was kind of part of the major factor. We said, the only way we can stop Wyoming from coming and imposing their game code on, on our land is having our own game code. Oh, okay. We've got to that protect our sovereignty. We've got to protect our treaty rights. And right. We've got to do it our way. And so that, to me, that was a determining factor that the majority of people said, we got to do this. Okay. Yeah, that does seem like a pretty good motivation. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Wes, you have a, a very storied uh, career in conservation and in tribal uh, tribal government. How did you come to find yourself uh, at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition? You know, I, I, even even when I'm not on the council or employed by anybody, I'm always 
meeting with our two tribal councils here. I'm always talking with them. I'm always telling them, you know, we, we, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to start taking over our nations. We got to start exerting our sovereignty on the water, taxation, energy, and environment. To me, that's my mantra: water, taxation, energy, and environment. Mm-hmm. Here at Wind River, we're very in a very unique position to really be able to exercise our governance to use water, taxation, energy, environment to connect and and to and to strengthen ourselves not only politically and economically, but spiritually. And so when you look at those four topics, and, you know, the, the Wind River Reservation, we're just a microcosm of Wyoming, energy, agriculture and livestock, recreation and tourism, government sector jobs and small businesses, private, you know, there, there's not big giant corporation in our small town. So that's what we have here. As, as, as a tribal, the two tribal governments and with the resources we have and the control we have over our two and a half million acres here, we can, we can, we can diversify our economy. We can create those governmental structures and programs that create money and jobs. Mm-hmm. And that in turn creates your economy. And so conservation is an important part of that because that's why people come out here. They want to see buffalo and grizzlies and bighorn sheep. And we've got that here. You know, we're probably never really going to open up our res the way other public lands are opened up. But we're part of the GYE, the ecosystem. And so that's really our, our major purpose and our major function is to play that, be, be that part of the ecosystem in, in, in a way that we're helpful and we're respectful and uh, we know what's going on. Yeah. You know, at GYC, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about how special the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is. Um, how, you know, what about the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem resonates with you? What makes it so special to you and kind of where does Wind River fit in to the ecosystem for you in that way? You know, when um, our mountains for Indian people, our mountain, we, we call them the old men because they've been here forever. And we, when we're around those areas, those from our region, you know, when we're around places like Yellowstone, we get a very peaceful, blessed feeling because of that connection we have to all above ground and all below ground. And so, again, you take care of us, we take care of you. What the Creator gave us takes good care of us. We're so thankful for that. We're so appreciative of that. And when you... And there's a lot of places you go, you can feel that. Not just Yellowstone, a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. You, can, you just feel good being there. Just makes you feel good. On the other hand, there there's a few places you can go where you don't get that feeling. So that's part of uh, that connection. How do we watch ourselves? How do we take care of ourselves and protect ourselves? And the animals and the birds, they, they, they're with us. They tell us. 
They help us. And right now they're telling us that we better do something about what's going on right now with climate change, with all this pollution and degradation that we're placing on our environment and our water. They're telling us that we have to speak up for them. And so that's what, that's, that's what we do as GYC and as Indigenous peoples. We've got to speak up for those that, can't, that don't have a voice. Absolutely. The park system and public lands um, of the United States of America are a very big part of you know, non-tribal Western conservation practices. And Yellowstone National Park, of course, the, the lands that we now know as Yellowstone existed uh, long before a boundary was drawn around and they were turned into a national park. But Yellowstone National Park just celebrated, observed um, its 150th anniversary of its creation. And you and your team uh, hosted just a few days ago now a virtual gathering to commemorate the 150th, but to specifically elevate the tribal community's voice um, surrounding that observance. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the idea for this event started and what your vision for it was? You know, um... Going back just a little bit earlier, you asked me how I got connected with GYC. Um, it was actually kind of, um, like I was telling you, you know, I've been doing all of this work with my counselors for free. I don't, I never get paid for anybody. I'm always talking with them about conservation and governance and protecting our sovereignty. And then finally, um, one of my uh, one of my brothers, his wife, one of her friends from Montana, sent her the the. the uh, the job oh, uh, announcement for for this position, mm-hmm. and then um, my brother's wife she said this she said she she said this is something that you that you might look into you might be interested in and um, so I uh, looked at what they were talking about and I said I've been doing this for the past forty years and then haven't been getting paid for it you know <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so I said yeah I might let me see if I can. It just really uh, was amazing the response I got from GYC. Um, I've been at this for a while, so I, I, I know what we need to do, and, and, and I kind of got a plan of where we need to go. And what GYC wants to do with the Wind River Conservation Office fits right into that plan. We've got to start educating our young people about Wind River governance, Wind River treaties, wind river water, wind river conservation, and that all connects our, our, our language, our culture, our tradition connects to education and scientific and technical needs that we have. And so that's exactly what we're going to be doing here with our office at Wind Rivers. How do we connect the elders to the young people? How do we you know, what, what I was telling Colleen Matera the other day, I said, you know, I said, when we have a hydrologist out there telling our young people about, you know, all the microinvertebrates and all those technical terms and other things that they use, I said, we've got to have a tribal elder right there with them, telling them why we believe, what, how we respect this water and mm-hmm. 
we believe we believe there's a spirit in the river. Tell them about that spirit and how to talk to that spirit. And every once in a while, you go to the river and you make an offering to the river. Maybe some tobacco, or maybe some cedar, or maybe some sage, or maybe a piece of meat from your meal. You make an offering to those spirits. And so that's a connection that we have that. Um, Greater Yellowstone Coalition is allowing us to not only feel that, but allowing us to protect that. And so that's why I'm enjoying my job. <laughs> well, you are a very, you know, very important and integral member of our team, and certainly you are a visionary, and um, you know your your vision is is helping helping guide our work. Um, and all of us, really. So, you know, we're so so pleased to to be part of the same organization. You know, I've always, I've always said that you know, Wind River, we really have with our land base, and we have relatively small tribes. You know, the Arapaho tribes about ten thousand members. The Shoshone tribes about five thousand. You know, you've got some of these tribes with small reservations. They've got thirty, forty thousand tribal members. And so, you know, we've got land base, we've got the mountains, we've got water, we've got resources, we've got, you know, the governance to, 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 to manage that the way we want to manage and, and protect ourselves. And we want to take that vision that we have and that effort and that government and start helping other tribes that are in within the GYE understand their governance because as tribes... Tribal governments, we can have higher standards like for air quality and water quality than the state or federal government. That's governance. That's sovereignty. That's conservation. That's power. Yeah. What if, what if all the tribes in the Missouri River Valley Basin had the same water quality standards? We'd have a big voice in protecting the river. Not uh, air quality. So there's a lot of other area right now. They're you know they're planning. They still want to do uranium mining. They're talking about a nuclear facility down here in Kimmerer, Wyoming, which just is over the hill from us. You know, so we got to start gearing up. You know, we got to start protecting ourselves. And this meeting that we just this virtual Zoom gathering that we had, that's where we want to elevate it into the higher echelon of the federal government and tribal leadership and NGOs where we use all of our might and our power to address what's going on out here. And so if all if our tribes with our standards and our sovereignty and our treaty rights and then, you know, even under the like the National Historic Preservation Act, Archaeological Resource Protection Act, Antiquities Act, some of these other laws, tribes have authority off reservation. I've always told tribe you should we should have tribal environmental policy acts just the same way that, that as a, we have the national environmental policy act, and that way number one we get control of our who's doing what on our reservation, and number two it gives us more authority off reservation. Mm -hmm. That's how we need to look at that. That's where NGOs come in. That's where the GYC comes in because we all need to fight this together and we all need to work it together. So it sounds to me, Wes, like you feel that there's a tremendous amount of untapped leadership power that exists in collaboration and coordination between 
different tribes and different tribal governments, you know, with the assistance then of entities. But is that kind of what your was that kind of your vision is that you see like this deeper collaboration that then sort of elevates the ability of all tribes to work together to then hold really everybody to higher environmental standards? You hit the nail right on the head when you said there's a dearth of knowledge out there right now on governance. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, my, our office here, we're focusing on Wind River, but, you know, working with Jason Baldus and the National Wildlife Federation and the Buffalo Programming, and we're connected to the Intertribal Buffalo Council. We're connecting kind of on a more of a national level, way beyond the bounds of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But that's necessary. That, that power and that clout that we have together will give us more power and clout on the GYE and other, and, 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 and our viewpoint, and just like everybody else, you know, the Y to Y, Yellowstone to Yukon. That's a lot of territory there that needs to be protected. We need to start working, looking at international, you know, relationships with our brothers and sisters in Canada. So this event we had, uh, on Tuesday, really um, was was a good sounding board and a good springboard for that to happen. There, you know, the, the speakers we had from the federal side, you know, the speakers we had from the tribal side, there was just a good mix of comments that really got people understanding. You know, there's some issues here that need to be discussed. There, there, there's, there's some talk that needs to be going on. Tribes need to have inclusion and a voice in these issues. Why have they been excluded? You know, yeah. so... To me, it was really a good session of just making people think of this big picture. And June 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, you know, we're going to have even more opportunity to expand that and then, you know, gather that strength and power with our with all these other organizations. So what, what do you think it is about the fact that we had this big virtual gathering on the anniversary of the founding of Yellowstone National Park? Um, as, you know, a national piece of protected land. Uh, so what about the 150th anniversary do you think made that intertribal gathering particularly powerful, poignant, timely? What's the nexus there for you? You know, I think um, Buffalo is what connects everybody. You know, whenever you think of Buffalo, I mean, Yellowstone, you know, that's kind of one of the first images that comes to your mind is Buffalo. And that's what really pulls together the tribes. And even even non-tribes, right? Even all, all Americans, you know, when we see a picture of Buffalo or when we you know, think about Yellowstone, we, that, 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 that Buffalo is there. And I think... Uh, the beauty and magic of Yellowstone is still helping us. That's how we believe as, as, as Indian people. Our relatives in that park are still helping. They're, 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 just like I said, they're, they're telling us, you need to speak for us, you mm-hmm. need to talk up for us. And so I think that's, I think that's another feeling that people got when when we were talking about how do we elevate indigenous voices? How do we practice more conservation? How do we start 
connecting. And to me, I think people are also recognizing that indigenous management practices are a formidable weapon in climate change. And so I think there's kind of all, I just think now that there's just more of a interest and more of a feeling and more of an attraction to parks and how do we take care of them and how do we how do we protect what's there? The grizzlies, the buffalo, you know, all these other things. So I think that I think that was really kind of a, 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 a mood of everybody that that was in our virtual gathering. Right. You know, they, they felt that and I, and, and that was awesome to, 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 to be part of that. Yeah, there was a, there was a really distinct energy in that gathering. Yeah, it was very very cool to witness. So, how do you feel? And maybe this is a really complicated answer. <laughs> There's a complicated answer to this, but if there is an answer, you know, how what are some of the ways that you think non-tribal land management agencies, nonprofits, and other you know non-tribal entities can do a better job, not just of saying they want more tribal voices and part of their decision-making, but actually taking action to include tribal priorities and in the decisions they're actually making for the lands that we are all trying to do a better job of stewarding. I think one of the, the first things they really have to get is understanding of the treaties. And to, to most people, a, a, a treaty is just a piece of paper. And when our ancestors signed those treaties, they were trying to protect the way of life. Mm -hmm. And the Treaty of 1863 for the Eastern Shoshone tribe, they, that, are the, that treaty, we had 44 million acres of land. Right where we're at now, in west central Wyoming, it went west into Idaho, south into Utah, took up the Great Salt Lake east into Colorado, and then back up here into Wyoming. We had 44 million acres. And so our, our leaders back then thought 44 million acres should be enough for us to be able to protect our way of life and preserve our ways and preserve our knowledge and our, what we have. And then five years later, the Treaty of 1868, they knocked it down to 2.5 million acres. Federal park managers and forest service managers, they really need to understand what, what, that, what that treaty means to us, trying to protect the way of life. The pine tree is a very important part of our beliefs, one of our most important relations. We always make offerings to them when we get a chance to use them in our teas and medicines and eat part of them too. So they're a very important relative. They take care of us, we take care of them. And so that's really the understanding that federal managers have to get. And that's kind of uh, sensitizing them. And I guess it's like sensitivity training and sovereignty training wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. Because me, I've always felt that our sovereignty and our spirituality are connected mm -hmm. as Indian people. And so that's where we really need to hammer home to federal managers is the sensitivity they must have to our beliefs and our values and how we connect to everything around us 
And then the understanding of that treaty was not a grant of rights to us. It was a grant of rights from us. But everybody treats it the other way around. And so, to me, that's standing up for our treaty rights and, again, governance. That's always my priority. We as tribal leaders, we've got to be able to stand up and talk for that and defend that. Yeah. And make sure that we always are driving that point home. One thing that seems like can be a hang-up, um, and I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions and going out on a limb here, so... Uh forgive me to anybody who's listening who takes issue with this statement, is that it feels like sometimes tribal involvement um, is approached from like a stakeholder level where, you know, if you are trying to, let's say, implement like a new project, if you're an agency trying to implement a new project and you need stakeholder involvement, tribe tribal representatives end up sort of being included in that at the level essay like, a recreation interest group or a specific community as opposed to being connected on the level of like a sovereign nation. And so there's sort of feel sometimes like there is a discrepancy in there's just like an order of magnitude different between what we tend to think of as stakeholder involvement from like, you know, different members of a community to communities with different interests and tribal involvement, which seems like it should uh, take place sort of at, in a far higher echelon uh, than simply like making space for, you know, tribal members at like meetings with stakeholders. Does that resonate with you or do you think I'm missing the mark there? You know, you, we always hear us talking about the government to government relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what you're, that's what you're talking about right there. And you're exactly right. That's, we're never really fully looked at as a government to government. Right. You know, with our treaties and being federally recognized tribe, we're right at the top with the, with the, with the federal government. Then you have the state government under that. Then you have county governments under there. Then you have municipal government under that and all these other. And we should be right at the top. And most of the time, we're an afterthought. Right. Oh, we forgot to include the tribe. And then sometimes tribes don't even get notified of actions and you know activities that affect their lands and some of their, their, their resources. And so there's really that, that gap. We should always be at the table, but we're not. Mm-hmm. And part of that is our fault, I believe. And that's where governance comes in. You know, as tribal leaders, we got to be knowing what going on in the state legislature and deals that are affecting us and what's going on on the Senate Indian Committee in, in Washington and, you know, all these other the national entities that affect us. Mm-hmm. We should always be saying, hey, we're, fit, we're government, we've got a government, we've got a government relationship here. We're, we demand to be notified every time these meetings are being held. And then the other side of it is right now, a lot of tribes, you know, we don't have strong policies and co. In fact, we don't even have, you know, policies identified for resources or conservation. We don't have codes. We don't have standards. We don't have regulations. We don't. So, again, getting back to government, tribes really have 
their own responsibility to make sure that the federal government knows how they want their resources managed, knows how they want environment protected, knows how they want cultural and archaeological resources all out there notified and consult consultation. So, you know, you know, we, we can place a lot of the blame on the federal government for their ineptness, but at the same time as tribal governments, we have an obligation to help them wise up, you know, <laughs> give, give them the information they need so they're not leaving us out and excluding us. They understand these tribes need to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems like a movement needs to occur everywhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sure. Um, bringing it back to the, the, the 150th gathering that we just held, um, for folks who were unable to attend that, we do have a recording on the Greater Yellowstone Coalition website. I believe it's www.greateryellowstone.org slash gathering. But can you share what were to your mind some of the highlights of that time we spent together? You know, just just kind of, not kind of, just having the indigenous presence, starting off with our elders and our drum. And I, and I know there was some audio difficulty with the drum and how, how it sounded out there, but a lot of the people that I talked to and commented said that really helped set the tone for what we need to talk about. I feel like one of the really powerful takeaways for me, and I, I hope for others, from the gathering that we just held was it is very possible to be honest with each other to talk about hard things, to be real, and to look toward the future with positivity and determination. And that just by having authentic conversations about the mistakes of the past and the really painful parts of the past does not preclude us from doing a better job in the future. And I hope that, you know, that sort of like energizing, motivating message was something that people could take away from that gathering as well. And, you know, for the non-tribal members in particular on that call, I think it's important to take responsibility for what can sometimes feel like our desire to stick the head, stick our heads in the sand because we're like, well, that's all stuff that happened in the past. And I wasn't here for that. And I wasn't part of that. And like, we have to get over that and be yeah. able to show up at those conversations and listen and not get defensive and, um, to commit to doing a better job moving forward and to continue to show up in those spaces. So I, I was very grateful for the opportunity to be part of that. Yeah, and Faith kind of um, summed up just what you said, you know, about, you know, a lot of different experiences and honor, but what she said kind of at the end there was like, we honor difference. We honor difference. We don't. We don't fight it. We don't, you know, we're not hostile to it. We're, we honor differences and see where we can find out how we divide our our differences and, and make them work for the good of all of us. So I, I agree. That's what everybody was just saying. There was just so much. In fact, uh, one of my friends from Montana just uh, texted me. She said, you had some heavy hitters there, she said. Oh, big uh, time. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of power and influence and wisdom in that in that virtual room. Yeah, I know. Sure. You know, and that's that was the other thing. Just the feeling you got virtually. Yeah. 
You know, just think what would have been, how it would have been if it had been all together. You know, you know? Right. Which brings us to the, the next thing, because because we are going to meet together. We're going to, um, you know, originally we had had the marked event be scheduled for in-person, but because of, you know, the the way that COVID continues to move through our communities, um, we punted that back to June. So we are going to have an in-person gathering in June. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that's going to be like and kind of what your hopes for the June event are? Well, kind of our initial planning is just more of what we did on Tuesday, um, but with some additional, a little more detail on some of the programs and some of the issues we're dealing with, the on-the-ground programs. Uh, but we're also really working with the Forest Service and Park Service. Um, we're trying to get a lot of their federal managers and people here so not only to train them, but also to get discussion going, get them to meet people, get them interacting, get some recognition going, get some force going. I love that. Really looking forward to that. Um, but Wes, celebrating, commemorating, observing the 150th and parlaying that into these really powerful gatherings is clearly a huge lift, but it's certainly not the only thing that you're doing uh, down in our Wind River uh, office. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other work and other program areas that you are um, tackling uh, down there with GYC? You know, locally, uh, we're starting what we're, ta- what we're calling the Water and Buffalo Initiative for Wind River. And our slogan for that effort is Water is life, buffalo is power, food is healing. And right now there's some things going on in Congress. They, Congress, uh, the, the House of Representatives passed the Indian Buffalo Management Act uh, about six months ago. And so we're hoping that the United States Senate passes that Indian Buffalo Management Act here in the very near future. The language of the act states that the Secretary of Interior will work with tribes not only to help them put together buffalo management plans and code, but will recognize those tribes that have buffalo management codes and regulations and standards. There's no tribes that have that right now. And so when we started our Wind River Water Code here, we and we had a couple of uh, good attorneys, uh, Dr. Charles Wilkinson on the University of Colorado Boulder, and then Dr. David Getches, who was uh, both both of them were very well uh, versed on uh, federal Indian law and federal Indian water rights law. They helped us put together our Wind River Water Code, so we know the process and how to put together a code. That's what we need to start. We're going to start doing here at Wind River is provide that training, but also help our community here at Wind River understand our governance through these codes we have, the policies that we develop for these codes, and then the legal, technical, and administrative parts of that that we use to back up these policies that our tribal elders and our community make. That's the governance. How do we connect the grassroots to the governance? Mm-hmm. So that's. Not only going to happen here at Winterburn, we want to help all the other tribes in the GYE, all those 49 tribes that are connected to Yellowstone, we're going to help them. And we're going to work together on it. Yeah, that's 
really exciting to think about. Um, so Buffalo, let's talk about Buffalo for a, a little bit. You shared a story a few weeks ago when you and I were chatting about what it was like to welcome Buffalo back to Wind River. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share that story with us again now. You know, on uh, October 11th, we had the uh, honor of having 50 headed Walapo delivered back here to the Reyes. And um, 25 head went to the Shoshone tribe, 25 head went to the Rapo tribe. And so each tribe has their own little area now where they're holding their herds. You know, when they brought those those 25 head to the Shoshone uh, area, uh, the buffalo herd pasture, uh, they pulled up one of those big old stock trucks and uh, that, that, you know, those stock trucks had those oblong holes on the side of it. And so they were parked there for a while and I could, I was watching, I could see those buffaloes stand there and kind of moving around a little bit. So I walked up to the side of that trailer and there was a buffalo there had its side to me. And I put my hand in there and I, I touched, put my hand on that buffalo's side. And I could feel him because he kind of twitched a little bit in that spot where I touched him, but I could feel his heart in me and I could feel my heart in him. And I said, Welcome home. And when they open up that gate for that stock trailer and they see those buffalo come running out onto our land, that was one of the best feelings I ever experienced. And, and, and that's what's connecting us. We have power and with water and with energy, especially with water, tribes are going to have political and economic clout that they never, ever realized. And that's where we need to go. What gives you hope for the future? I want my young people and my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to understand what Wind River governance is all about and how thankful and blessed we are to still have what we have. We still have our lodges and our medicines and our ceremonies. We still have our Indian doctors, those that can take care of you and heal you and protect you. We still have, I, I, I've seen things in our lodges and ceremonies that most people would never ever believe. Just humble Indian men and women with that connection to what we have, have enormous power and healing. And we, we need to protect that. We need to save that. And at the same time, we need to understand the modern technological ways to be able to adapt. And that's what we've been able to do since 1492. We've had to adapt. And we need to strengthen ourselves so we can do that and take care of the coming generations. And we're getting to a point where 
have to act. Mm-hmm. It's on, for, for some, it's already too late. There's tribes that are extinct. There's animals that are extinct. There's birds that are extinct. There's fish that are extinct. Yeah, thank you for, sh- for sharing that with, you know, you, there's, <laughs> it's very clear that there's so much that you have, um, so much wisdom and experience and so many stories that you have to share with the younger generations. Who shared those things with you? You know, I lost, I lost my parents when I was fairly young. Lost my dad when I was nine. Lost my mom when I was 12. And uh, luckily, on my mom's side, I had a grandma and grandpa stood up for us. And so there was five of us. I have three sisters and a brother. And at that time, we were in age range from 12 to 2 years old. And my grandma and grandpa took us in. And they had to fight for us. The BIA was trying to uh, send us out to non-white homes all over the country, different places. That's how, and that's how they used to do it back in those days. But uh, my grandparents actually had to go to court. They had to go to court to fight for us. Luckily, the, the court ruled in our favor. And so, you know, but back back when I was young, you, you didn't go around asking a lot of questions and bothering people. You, you listened. And you got to be a lot around the elders. A lot of a lot of a lot of my grandpas used to gather up. And in our family beliefs here, you can have a lot of grandpas. You can have a couple dozen grandpas just on your mom's side. <laughs> you can have a couple dozen grandpas on your yeah, yeah, that because of an extended family relationship. And like my grandma and grandpa, all their brothers and sisters were also my grandmas and grandpas. So that just just spreads out, but you, you can always be around people talking. And even back then, reciprocity was always part of what they did. You know, in my younger days, when they had harnesses and horseshoes and bridles and saddles and all that, they took good care of them. They said, these are going to take care of you. you got to take care of them. All their tools, their shovels, axes, pitchforks, picks, everything that they used. In their everyday lives to cut wood, to hunt, to gather, all that. They take care of it. They said, you take care of that, it'll take care of you. So that's the belief we always, we're, 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 we live with. Don't waste water. Don't waste food. Always share. Don't take more than you need. And so as I... And I, I never ever in my wildest dreams thought I'd be on a tribal council. And so um, I came back home. I was, I was uh, going to start college, and I came back home, and I got a summer job. And the summer job was I started a tribal newspaper, the Wind River News, 1977. And that newspaper is still going today. But um, I was the editor of that newspaper for a while. And so I started asking a lot of questions of tribal readers and tribal attorneys and federal officials and reporting on it in the newspaper. 
and um, I really uh, caught a lot of hell from tribal leaders and others <laughs> about some of the stuff I was reporting on. But boy, the community loved it. They said, we're glad you're telling us, and we're glad you're asking questions, we're glad to find out about this. And so that's what launched my political career. They said, you need to be on the council. And back in those days, it was a pretty simple process. They just have a tribal meeting, and people say, I nominate West Martell for to be on the Shoshone Business Council. And that's all it was. It was just a little old, simple community meeting. You'd have a bunch of people on the list. And here I go, I was totally amazed I got on the council. And then, hmm. uh, but, um, and then, uh, I was raised by my Arapaho grandparents, but I'm a rural Shoshone. Mm. So that caused me some intertribal conflict in politics also. Oh, he, he's nothing but a damn Arapaho. He's not going to do anything for our Shoshone people. You know? so, and when I first heard that, at the first big old general council meeting, where you got a whole bunch of hundreds of people, and they were, they were calling me down mm. because I was half Arapaho. And uh, and I was just sitting there thinking, I said, man, I don't, I don't need this. <laughs> what did I get myself into here? <laughs> what am I doing here, man? <laughs> Wait a and second. So, and uh, so I was up there and I was getting ready to leave and some old ladies came up, about five of them. Five old ladies. They're all gone now, but they all came up. And a lot of those people out there were calling me down. Boy, they were really calling me down, you know. They said, don't listen to those people. They said, we're glad you're here. We need somebody to talk for us. We need somebody that's going to stand up for us. That's how I, that's how I got to spend 20 years <laughs> on the Shoshone Council because of those old ladies. I was going to say that sounds like an incredibly powerful moment to have had. Yep. They have me quite a bit. Yeah. One thing that we like to ask folks who join us on the podcast are if they have, you know, a specific conservation hero, like a role model who, you know, they can kind of point to as saying, this is the person who, you know, really inspired my conservation career or interest. Does that resonate with you or for you, is it more that you, you know, grew up with that ethos of reciprocity surrounding you and you think that's where your conservation values comes from, which, you know, what do you think that is? Kind of a, a combination, you know, mm-hmm. as when, when we're, you know, back when in my younger days, uh, we never had elk heads hanging on our wall. Fish mounted hanging on our wall. Everything was used. And so, you know, always very um, inclusive uh, activity that helped you respect and honor all that we have and all that we use. And so, just being around those elders, you know, talking about our relatives, you know. All these good things we have, take care of them, they'll take care of you. That's what really helped me. But also, when I got on the council, then got an official game, and then and Dick Baldus, mm-hmm. Jason, Jason Baldus' dad, yeah, 
he's a tribal member and he was he was one of the fish and wildlife service leaders and he was the really one that really got me into the, the, the technical side of things, how that connected to what we believe. And so he's my hero. Wes, is there anything that comes to mind of things people can do or actions people can take, either you know tribal or non-tribal individuals, to support your vision for the future and you know, your conservation goals? Well, uh, start off by a good land acknowledgement, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, well, who was here before me? And then once we find out about that, try to find out a little more. Mm-hmm. We really need to, number one, figure out what's happening to tribes in some of these areas and how is our federal government responding to that. And I... So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be getting these federal and hopefully these federal, these park service and forest service people that are gather, gathering in June because we really need to start exploring that interaction and how do we make it happen. And so that's, I'm, I'm really looking for, and, 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 and I think this June gathering we're having will really expand that because we really need to get to the halls of Congress and there's a lot of other work and a lot, a lot, a lot of long, hard work ahead of us. But yeah. I, I think we've really got, we've got a good start and I think we've got some momentum and we've got to take advantage of that. Yeah, momentum. I think we can feel that right now and it's it's a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, sure. feels good. It does. Yeah, feels good to be a part of it. It does feel good to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you want to share today or that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? We've covered a lot of ground, but is there anything, any other threads you want to tug out in this conversation? Some of the things I've, I've experienced in my life really show some of the dark side of uh, the dealings we've, we've, we've involved with with Indian tribes. And... The thing that really uh, strengthens us is, uh, for me, is my family. And our elders tell us, uh, when you're rich, you have a lot of relatives. And so me, my dad was Shoshone, and my mom was Arapaho. I'm pretty rich. I got a lot of relatives in both tribes. Yeah. And even within my family, I've got five children. I've got... 19 grandchildren. I've got four great-grandchildren. You know, I, 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 when I tell you I lost my parents when I was fairly young, uh, they never, my parents never reached the age where they got to see grandchildren. And so when I got my first granddaughter, that was the best feeling ever, that I got to reach that age to see a grandchild. And now I've got 19 of them, and I've got four greats. I'm very rich and blessed. And so that's what gives me my strength and my energy is my family and my children, my grandchildren. My wife is a, she's an environmental scientist with Fish and Wildlife Service. So she knows that technical and administrative and scientific. So she's always feeding me that side of it too. 
you know, and then I, when I'm home, when I'm home, I, you know, attend our ceremonies and go to sweat lodges and get drinks. And I'm just, just lucky to be where I'm at right now. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I, I know you have, um, we're hoping to have saved a little bit of your voice today since you have to go cheer now. Speaking <laughs> of grandchildren, go cheer at your granddaughter's very important yeah, basketball game. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, so we're certainly uh, wishing her all the, well, it sounds like she doesn't need luck. She sounds like a talented gal, but. Uh, yeah, hopefully they can make it, get it going on. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Wes, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, to share your story with us. Um, so much gratitude for you. Um, I'm so glad that you are part of part of our team. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for letting me talk. Absolutely. We are so grateful to have Wes on our team and for the generosity with which he shares his wisdom and expertise. Wes, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation and continued leadership. We hope you had enough voice left to cheer extra loudly at your granddaughter's basketball game. If you are interested in learning more about the recent virtual and upcoming in-person intertribal gatherings, you may do so in the show notes. You can watch a recording of the entire event, read our blog recap, and sign up for the June event in Wyoming. The Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast is produced by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of this remarkable place, the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. We appreciate you stopping by and we'll see you next time.